If you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to uh, Luke chapter 7, we're going to uh, look at verses 1 through 10 and talk a little about the subject of salvation. It's a, uh, a big subject, salvation, how you're saved, and not just uh, you either, how we, how any of us are saved. It's a big subject. And yet I realize, of course, that it's not a subject uh, that you always hear a lot of people talking about in uh, these terms, at least. Salvation, are you saved? How can you be saved? At church, I guess you expect it, I hope, but you uh, bring that up at work or school. I think people will look at you like you're a, a little different, like you're talking about something that's maybe not really relevant. When the reality is that it is actually the most relevant subject there is, even to them. You know, you uh, start looking at the problems of the world and what people think about and what uh, people worry about. It's like they're constantly thinking about salvation, how they're going to be saved, or uh, trying not to think about it if they don't think there's an answer. But it's right there in front of them, though they don't use that word probably. And that may be why they don't realize it. But every time they think about death, how are we going to fix that? What do I do about that? Or sickness, or uh, that sense of uh, dissatisfaction or discontentment that's gnawing at their gut, or identity, uh, purpose, uh, or guilt, shame, or, or wars and the problems people have with each other, or the environment or the problems they have inside themselves, or even politics to a certain extent. You talk about any of those issues, and you talk about solutions, and you're talking about salvation, basically. Everybody has an idea about salvation. It's a, a super important subject, relevant, whether people know it or not, and it's one of the main things the Gospel of Luke is about. The Bible, the whole Bible is about uh, salvation, uh, but the Gospel of Luke is about salvation too, God's way of salvation, what is wrong with us, what is uh, wrong with the world, why we actually have the problems that we do, uh, where they come from, those problems, and how they're going to be uh, fixed. You might think of Luke as entering into this conversation that everybody's having about salvation and saying, you know the answer, God's answer is Jesus. Jesus has come to provide salvation, rescue, deliverance, and Luke wants to explain exactly how he's doing that. This is a, a big claim that he's making. If it's true, it absolutely changes everything. And so you need to understand how Jesus is doing that and how you can be sure of that. And Luke starts, maybe you remember, uh, in chapters 1 and 2 by connecting Jesus to the Old Testament. So this is something that he really works at making clear in his introduction. To understand Jesus and salvation, you have to start with the Old Testament and God's promise. He's not like new or disconnected from what God has been doing. No, he's connected. And so he talks about the birth of Jesus, Luke. And as he explains the significance of the birth of Jesus, what he wants you to see is that one thing that makes Jesus so significant is that he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised about salvation. The Old Testament says God is going to do something in this world, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. 
And so as an illustration, maybe you remember that Zechariah, uh, the father of John the Baptist, who prophesies about Jesus, uh, what does he say when he talks about what God is doing in this world through Jesus? He says, Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69, first, that he is salvation. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so there's that word salvation describing Jesus. And then now listen to this part. As he spoke by the mouth, the horn of salvation, Jesus, is as he spoke. This is that salvation. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus. I'm talking about the salvation you read about in the Old Testament, which is really exciting because it means we're talking about a complete salvation, a total salvation. What the Bible means by salvation, it is not just fixing a small problem here or there. It is a total reversal of the curse that we're thinking about. And Luke does a lot of work in these opening chapters to cement that in our minds. And maybe partially he does all that work because he knows what comes next. And what comes next is that Jesus starts getting rejected. And that's a kind of a surprise. God is providing salvation. Jesus is the answer, but not everyone is going to experience that salvation. And of course, the surprise is not exactly that not everyone's going to experience that salvation, because in the Old Testament, we know not everyone experiences salvation. But the surprise is, who doesn't experience that salvation? That's the surprise. Who doesn't? experience that salvation. And so, for example, you look at the first sermon Jesus preaches in uh, chapter 4. It's in his hometown. And you know, if anyone is going to get excited about Jesus, you would think it was going to be his hometown. And yet the opposite. They end up getting so angry that they want to throw him off a cliff. Literally, they want to kill him. And it has nothing to do with Jesus's abilities. That's what's so interesting. He is healing people, and everybody knows that. He is casting out demons, and even the demons know who he is. He's going around doing everything you would expect of someone who is bringing salvation. It's not what he's doing that's the issue. Luke proves he has the power to fix all the physical problems in the world and the spiritual problems. It's not what he's doing, it's what he's saying. People don't like what he's saying, and he starts being rejected by people you wouldn't expect to reject him, like his hometown first, and then the religious leadership in chapters 5 and 6. These people that you would expect to experience salvation are not experiencing salvation, and that is the really surprising thing, and that leads us to start asking some questions. And Luke starts giving some answers. And one big one is that their rejection of Jesus is not stopping Jesus and God and what he's doing through Jesus. And we know that, for one, because the next thing that Jesus does after he's rejected by these leaders is go up on a mountain and talk with God and choose 12 apostles and then come down. And that is like this big old statement. I am still fulfilling what God said he would fulfill through Israel. That's why there are 12 apostles, 12 uh, tribes, 12 apostles. The religious leadership 
rejected me, they're wrong. So God is choosing 12 new leaders in their place. And then Jesus preaches a sermon. And this sermon is almost like a manifesto. You think Moses coming down from the mountain to talk to Israel. This is like that. Jesus is talking to people who seem excited about following him and explaining a little about what it means to be his disciple, to be one of his people. And he begins by saying basically that it means right now you are going to be rejected, persecuted, and humiliated. Which means obviously that Jesus is not surprised by this response to him. He knows that a lot of these people you might have expected to experience salvation are not going to experience salvation and are in fact going to be opposed to him. Which leads to another question. And that's, if they're not going to experience salvation, who is? And I guess to expand it a little, if it's not the people you would expect, why isn't it? And then who is it? Which becomes a major theme in the next couple of chapters. Who are the kind of people this salvation is for? And so chapters 7 and 8, you look down, and there are a lot of different stories. Jesus heals a centurion's servant. Uh, that's the one we're looking at today. Uh, then Jesus raises a widow's son. Messengers from uh, John the Baptist. Uh, a sinful woman forgiven at the end of chapter 7. Women accompanying Jesus at the beginning of chapter 8. The parable of the sower. Uh, Jesus' mother and brothers. Jesus calms a storm. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. And so obviously there's a, a lot of variety in there. But one thing you do as you're studying the scripture is you look for repetition, especially with stories and especially with a gospel. You're looking for a key word or a key theme or a key pattern that connects the stories together. And in these two chapters, you find the word saved being used over and over again in a number of different ways. And that's new, kind of. Because in chapters 1 through 3, Luke talks about salvation, but he uses the noun for salvation over and over. And then chapters 4 through 6, you don't really find the word for salvation. You find Jesus proving he can save and people rejecting him. And then suddenly, chapters 7 and 8, it's the verb to save. It's moved from the noun for salvation to the verb. And it's coming up here in a really high concentration. So chapter 7, verse 50, as an example, this is the the story of the sinful woman who came to the religious leader's house and wept at Jesus' feet. Uh, and it comes to a, a high point in verse 50 when Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that same word is used in our story as well. Chapter 7, verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal. Or you could translate it, save his servant. Same word. In chapter 8, verse 12, as Jesus explains the story of the different soils, he says the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Chapter 8, verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And again, that's the same word, saved, just translated a little bit differently here. Chapter 8, verse 48, to the woman who had been sick for so long and reached out and touched Jesus, he said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally, again, saved you. Go in peace. 
And then chapter 8, verse 50, to a ruler named Jairus who was upset about the death of his daughter, Jesus looks at him and says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And again, that's the word for saved. And so in every story, even the ones that don't use the word, Luke is picturing Jesus as Savior. He's talking about salvation and people getting saved, saved from death, saved from sin, saved from nature, saved from demons, saved from sickness. But the theme is clearly salvation, Jesus' power to save, Jesus doing what was promised. And one of the big questions that he's answering is, who did Jesus come to provide that salvation for? It's not who you would expect. Why isn't it? And then who is it? Those are two big questions. Why isn't it these people? Why is it these people? And those are important questions uh, for us. They're not just uh, historical kinds of questions. Because if God is providing salvation through Jesus, this kind of salvation, total salvation, we want to be the kind of people that Jesus saves. We definitely want to make sure we understand how salvation works even if we assume we have the right answer, because there was a group back then that assumed they had the right answer, and they didn't. And so we need to know what did they get wrong, and what do we need to do to get it right? And in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, this first story, Luke provides a preview of his answer. This is a story that is designed to teach us something about how salvation works. Or I guess you could say it's a real-life illustration that Luke is using to clarify the answer Jesus already gave. Because you remember, Jesus already kind of gave an answer as he was finishing his sermon on discipleship in Luke 6. After he lays out what's going to happen to those who follow him and how they're supposed to respond, in the very last part of the sermon, he lays down a challenge. Verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. It's like Jesus is laying down a challenge. You, you can't just listen. You need to obey. Saying the right thing without being willing to obey, it's meaningless. And actually worse than meaningless. It is evil to say one thing about Jesus with your lips without being willing to submit to the authority of Jesus with your life. It is a big deal. Such a big deal that if you're not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus, you are not going to be saved. This is part of what makes the division between those who are his followers and those who are not. And to illustrate that, Jesus makes a comparison between someone who builds a house that is able to withstand a storm and someone who builds a house that's not. And the storm ultimately is God's judgment. We don't know that for sure, sure looking at the way Luke puts it here in uh, Luke 6, but we compare it with Matthew 7 where Jesus uses the same illustration. It's clear he's talking about judgment. And so it's like Jesus is saying, you, you're wondering why some people are saved and some are not. What's the difference? The difference between the two is that one man comes and he hears my words and he does them. And the other man comes and he hears my words and he doesn't do them. And so Jesus is putting this huge stress on the importance of obedience as we're reading this. If you want to answer in Luke as to why all these people you would expect to experience salvation didn't, who had all these privileges didn't, you might start with the fact that while they might have gotten excited about Jesus for a while, they weren't willing to submit to his absolute authority over their life. 
And so you know to take a minute. If you are not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus over your life, you need to be scared. Even if you're saying the right things about Jesus, you need to be scared. You, you see someone calling Jesus Lord, but not willing to submit. That is a scary thing, unless they repent. It's only a matter of time until they reject Jesus or Jesus rejects them. That's the trajectory they are on. If they are not willing to obey, they are not going to experience salvation. Which might cause you to ask a question, though. That, that's the thing. And this is where I think we need clarification. I said this story, Luke 7, part of why it's here is for clarification. And this is where we need clarification. Because with all this stress on the importance of obedience, Luke highlighting, you know why these people in Israel rejected Jesus? They weren't willing to submit to Jesus. All this stress, it should cause us to be asking ourselves a question. Like, wait, I want to make sure I get this right. Salvation's a big deal. How does salvation work? Am I saved by faith or by doing what Jesus says? That's a really important question. And that question gets a little more intense if you look at the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 7. Because it's even more direct there, I think. Different sermon, same basic conclusion. Matthew 7, verse uh, 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so like, it's like Jesus is making a distinction there. Who enters the kingdom of heaven and who doesn't? And first he talks about the people who don't. And the people who don't are the people who are saying the right things about him. Lord, Lord. And even there they are able somehow to do miraculous things in his name. But fundamentally are disobedient. And he calls them workers of iniquity. And Jesus is clear. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will be surprised on Judgment Day, which means they will go to hell, even though they say the right things about Jesus and do all these miracles because they don't obey. That's how important obedience is. To put it positively, it is the one who does the will of Jesus' Father in heaven who receives eternal life, which I'm saying can sort of make you wonder. This is where we need some help. I thought we were saved by grace through faith not on the basis of what we do. And so Luke chapter 7, he tells a story. Luke tells a story about someone who did respond the way Jesus wanted, about someone who was building his house on the rock. This is a, a positive story. It's a real-life illustration of someone who responded rightly to Jesus. It is, if you think of Luke as preaching a sermon, it is like he shares a story about two builders, and then he brings up on the stage a person who is building his life deep on the rock to show you a good example of how this works. But also to give a contrast to those who weren't. The stories are connected. And Luke helps us make that connection in verse 1, where he says, after he had finished with all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. That's like the, the setting for the story. And he shares the setting because he wants us to have these sayings in mind as we read about what he's about to tell us. And Luke makes sure we see the significance, that we don't miss the point, by calling attention in verse 9 to the way Jesus marveled 
at this man. He says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, literally was amazed by him. Jesus was amazed. Luke is telling a story about someone who amazes Jesus in a positive way. In the previous story, in verse 46, it's like he's amazed in a negative way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? But here it's very different. He's amazed in a positive way as he looks at someone. And to make sure we don't miss what's amazing, Jesus turns to the crowd that follows him, the crowd that just came from listening to him preach, the ones he was just asking why they were calling him Lord and were not willing to do what he says. He turns to that crowd and he tells them exactly what amazed him about this man. He says, I tell you, even in Israel, I have not found such faith which highlights what was amazing about the man, his faith. We're saved by faith. We're saved by faith. We're saved by faith. This man had faith. And that's also what was missing in Israel. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. That's the issue. That's the contrast, a lack of faith. That's the root problem. Why these people were saying, Lord, Lord, calling Jesus, Lord, Lord, and not doing what he says. A lack of obedience came from a lack of faith. And that is a big problem because we're saved by faith, obviously. That's how a person experiences salvation. And you're going to see that loud and clear as Luke talks about salvation and Jesus saving in chapters 7 and 8. That's what he keeps coming back to. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith, verse 9. Verse 50 of chapter 7, your faith has saved you. Chapter 8, verse 25, where is your faith? Identifying the problem. Chapter 8, verse 48, your faith has made you well. Chapter 8, verse 50, do not fear, only believe. So these chapters are about salvation, and they're about faith. You are saved by faith. But the faith that saves has certain distinguishing characteristics, which I think Jesus sees in this centurion, doesn't see in Israel, and he wants us to appreciate. It's not just coming to Jesus and saying the right words. There were lots of people doing that, and Jesus knew that they did not have true faith. It goes deeper, And to appreciate how much deeper, I think it helps to make a contrast with this crowd that's following Jesus and the Israel who wasn't experiencing salvation at that point. What is the difference? You've got people saying the right things about Jesus without faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. What are they missing? They're calling him Lord, Lord. They're coming to him for healing. What are they missing? What is different about this centurion? And you need to see this difference. Again, this is not just theoretical because we're talking about salvation, the most important subject that there is. And there are people who are going to experience salvation and there are people who are not. And this story helps you get at the heart of what's different between something that maybe looks like Christianity but isn't, Uh, between counterfeit faith and real faith, those who really are saved and those who are not. And you have to kind of look closely because they have some similarities at first on the outside. If you, if you look at this crowd, for example, if we look at Israel and we look at this centurion, and one big similarity is that they both have a problem and they're both coming to Jesus. We, we see the centurion's problem specifically in verse two. Luke says, now a centurion had a servant 
who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And a centurion was a, a Roman soldier, and he, he might not have been Roman himself, actually, in terms of his nationality. He probably wasn't, but he, he also definitely wasn't Jewish, and that's important. That's like the main thing to know about him. It, it might have been that, uh, and some people say, that he was Syrian, but he worked as a soldier for Rome. That we know for sure. And he was a pretty important soldier uh, in that a centurion was in charge of somewhere around 100 men, centurion, century, 100. And normally, of course, this would not have been the kind of person that Jewish people would have liked because he was working for the enemy who was occupying their land. So normally, their attitude toward him would have been more like their attitude toward a, a tax collector, not good. But this centurion was obviously not a normal one. In fact, he seems to have been well-loved by the Jews. And surprisingly, this might be the reason they loved him. He seems to have been himself an unusually loving person. In that here, we see he had a servant who was sick and about to die, and it actually mattered to him. The servant was highly valued by him, Luke says at the end of verse 2. And given the way the centurion acts here, I think it might be better to translate that phrase, the servant was very dear to him, which was a little bit unusual in those days, a soldier caring about a slave, uh, because slavery wasn't always as brutal in, in those days as it has been more recently, but it could have been. There was nothing stopping that. And so uh, there are places you read about Romans and other, others talking about slaves as basically living tools or instruments. And yet this centurion had a very different attitude toward his servant. You might say he was merciful toward his servant, which made this sickness that his servant was experiencing such a problem for him. He didn't want to see the servant die. And so this centurion was being confronted with this big problem that we all face, and that's the problem of sickness and death, which is not the only problem that Jesus came to save us from, but it is a very significant one. And Jesus came to provide a real and lasting salvation from sickness and death. And the question that we're asking is very simply, how does God want us to approach Jesus for this ultimate salvation? He is the Savior. He's the only one who will be able to deliver us from sickness and death forever. And if you know that, that's good. But obviously, as we've just said, there was a whole group of people who did know that in Luke 6 because they came from all over to be healed by Jesus, and yet Jesus ultimately wasn't satisfied by the way they were approaching him. And actually, if we go back further in Luke, we find a maybe even better contrast. That first time Jesus was preaching in Luke 4 in his hometown, you remember? They were all marveling at him, Luke says, until uh, verse 23, Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do in your hometown as well. They wanted Jesus to fix their problems too, and they knew he could, but you know what? He didn't because there was something wrong in the way they were approaching him. They had a problem. They believed Jesus could heal, but there was something missing. And the centurion is providing us a contrast because he's in a similar situation. Only it's not him, it's his servant who's about to die. And his approach to Jesus is going to serve as a contrast for us with the people Jesus just rebuked in Luke 6 and for the people in his hometown as well. The text tells us he sent to Jesus the elders of the Jews, verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews. And these elders of the Jews illustrate, I think, one approach to Jesus. This is one way people try to answer the question, how do we experience salvation? 
if we take this as kind of a test case. They've got a problem. They think Jesus might be the answer, and they think this is how it works. You could say this is the wrong solution. It gets to the heart of what they're missing. They come to Jesus pleading the man's merits or works, or you could say worth. Jesus should save us because we deserve him to save us. That is some people's approach to Jesus. Jesus is the Savior, and he should save me because I'm coming to him, and I am worthy of being saved. And if you think about it, that's kind of what the people in Jesus' hometown were saying as well. Maybe not, I'm a good person, but this connection. This is your hometown. You need to do for us what you did in Capernaum. We deserve that. And it's definitely the way these elders of the Jews were coming to Jesus, verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And you hear the word worthy, because it's not hard to figure out what these men were, were thinking. They were looking at the way the centurion lived, and they were saying to themselves, This is a good person. This is the kind of person Jesus ought to help which from a human perspective, they had some reason for, for thinking. I mean, he must have been a kind person, even caring about people who work for him. And he was an important person. He didn't get to be in a, a centurion without being strong. Historians said a lot of things about centurions, but one thing they made clear was that Romans only appointed men as centurions who were good leaders and who would keep doing the right thing even if it meant they were going to die for it. He was rich. The centurion got paid about 100 times more than the average Roman soldier. As we could see, this centurion was wealthy enough to, to pay for the building of a synagogue pretty much by himself, which was another way he stood out from the average Roman and definitely from your average soldier in that most of them really looked down on the Jews or this man respected their God enough to actually get involved in helping them establish a place where they could learn, read, and study his word. Probably he was what they would have called back then a God-fearer, someone who wasn't a Jew but who was really interested in the God of the Jews enough, obviously, to build them a synagogue. And so while normally it would be kind of surprising to find a group of older Jewish men coming to Jesus on behalf of a Roman soldier, as you look at this man's character, you can understand why they were pleading with Jesus. And that's a strong word Luke uses, verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, this man is worthy to have you do this for him. And, you know, I just think that's a lot of people's approach to Jesus. There are whole versions of Christianity, I would say false Christianity, built on that. This man is worthy. And theoretically, maybe we know that's not right. But it's tempting, isn't it? To think you're basically a good person. The problems are primarily your environment. And so if you can just, you know, have people stop giving you a hard time and you keep trying to be a good person and do nice things and maybe go to church and give money and pray, you kind of deserve to have God treat you right, to save you. I would guess many people you know who believe in God think if they, if they just do enough good, they have to go to heaven. God has to let them in. I was actually just at a training yesterday where the whole basis of that training was people are basically innocent, people are basically good. And it was definitely a Christian-ish uh, place where I, was, where I was sitting. 
And so I wouldn't be surprised if many people you know who believe in God think if, if they just are good enough, they deserve salvation. God has to save them. And again, you might be like, that's not, that's not me. I totally know I'm not good. But if you start thinking about what you're thinking, like if you just take some time to start watching your thoughts, it's amazing how many are where we are basically admiring ourselves. Like one out of three thoughts sometimes is self-admiration. And sometimes we can even be proud of ourselves for not being proud of ourselves. It goes deep, feeling like we're worthy. And it's a huge spiritual problem because it means you're missing something fundamental about who you are and about who Jesus is. And we know that you're missing it because these Jewish leaders were wrong. That's part of why this story is here. And, and this gets at why they weren't willing to submit to Jesus. And this gets at why Jesus knew they didn't have real faith. It's an illustration of something we're going to see over and over again as to why they didn't experience salvation. Because while Jesus went with them, because he's compassionate and kind, the truth is this centurion was most definitely not worthy of the salvation Jesus came to provide. Not because he was especially bad or worse than most people. He wasn't. He seemed to be a, a pretty good guy, in fact. But because there is no one in the whole world who is good enough or obedient enough to deserve salvation. And now kind of just let me preach because I honestly don't think I can say that enough. You come into this world and you think you deserve everything. I mean, just spend time with a baby. They really are sure they are the center of the world. And if you don't do what they want you to do, the moment they want it, they are shocked. It is shocking to them. And they will try to punish you by screaming as loud as they can until you recognize it. And as we grow up, we get a little smarter, maybe. But this is pretty much, for most of us, our fundamental worldview. We are good people who deserve good things, especially from God. It's pretty rare that you ever meet a person who doesn't fundamentally believe that what they deserve is for pretty much everything to go their way. Even me, when I drive to church, you know, I am shocked every time I get a red light. And sometimes I just think, Josh, why are you shocked? It's because I think this world should go my way at every second. For, from their job, they, people think they, they always think they deserve to be promoted, they deserve a good salary to, to life, they deserve to be healthy, they deserve to be appreciated, they deserve to be comfortable to salvation, they deserve to go to heaven. Only, of course, as we look at the Bible, we see the opposite. While we're made in the image of God as humans, and that's awesome, that's glorious, we rebelled against God, and so we're born sinful. The, the words the Bible uses to describe us are enemies of God, children of wrath, dead, even in our trespasses and sin, what we deserve is God's judgment. All of us. And you guys know how radical what I just said was, right? Like, I know we're all at church, and we're like, oh, he just said that. Like, that is shocking. We believe that. <laughs> Do you believe that? that? That we deserve judgment. Even seemingly good and important people like this centurion here in Luke 7 deserve judgment. 
And what is really remarkable about this centurion is that he knew it. If you look at verse 6, the centurion sent some of his friends, and, and I'm not sure exactly why, if the centurion had second thoughts after he sent the elders to, to Jesus, if he started thinking maybe about what they said to him before they left to talk to Jesus, maybe they had been saying, you know, sitting in his living room, yeah, yeah, he has to help you. We'll, we'll, we'll tell him how good a person you are. And at first maybe he was like, okay, okay. Uh, and then as he sat there in his house and he thought about it a little more, he was like, actually, no, that's not right. And so he calls some of his friends and he sends them quickly to Jesus. Maybe, I don't know how exactly he knew to send this second group to talk to Jesus. But the text tells us he did. Verse 6, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to speak more directly for him. I'm guessing the Jewish leaders weren't really listening to the centurion in terms of what he wanted them to say to Jesus. You can imagine it being more like, hey, okay, Jesus and us, we're Jewish, we've got this. But his friends, they're going to share his heart. And they do. They actually talk to Jesus directly as if he were asking Jesus himself, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. And this is solution number two, the real solution. And it helps us get at what's different between the two groups coming to Jesus. And this is important because Jesus is impressed by this man's faith. And when he hears what this man says, he's going to turn to the crowd and use him as a lesson of what true faith looks like. And here we see its first key element, which is a genuine humbling of oneself before God. Even though other people looked at the centurion as a good man, that's not how he saw himself when he compared himself to Jesus. In, in a couple different ways, he expresses the fact that he doesn't deserve anything from Jesus. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I, I, I don't, in fact, even see myself as worthy to come to you. That's what he means when he says, I did not presume to come to you. It's not that he thought he was so important that he didn't have time to come and ask Jesus for help. So he sent a group of people to do it for him. But the opposite, he sent others because he didn't feel like he was good enough to come into Jesus' presence. And that's surprising for a lot of reasons because we're talking about a person who was used to being looked up to himself, who was in a position of power, who had people telling him he was important. I'm sure of that. And even these Jewish leaders were saying he was a good man. And yet he can somehow see through all of that. Even though he wasn't even coming to Jesus to ask for something for himself, but instead for a servant, he still didn't feel like he deserved to be anywhere near Jesus. And, you know, that's a normal characteristic of, of, of saving faith that Luke keeps pointing out, actually. You remember when he describes the conversion of Simon? He brings up Simon as just an example, an illustration of what it was like for the apostles when they were uh, called by Jesus. What was Simon, Peter's reaction when he was in that boat with Jesus and he saw Jesus for who he was? Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Or later, how does Jesus describe his mission? I've not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. To be saved, you first need to know you need it. Others might look at you and say, you're a good person, and you deserve this or that. But you're like, what are you talking about? You clearly don't know me. Like the religious leaders might have looked at this centurion and been like, what are you saying you don't deserve Jesus to come into your house? Come on, that's too humble of you. What a humble man. And the centurion would have been like, humble of me? What are you talking about? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who I am? 
And I don't know how deep this went in the centurion because we don't meet him later, but Luke does seem to highlight centurions as we go on in Luke and Acts. We'll meet a centurion at the cross who really sees Jesus for who he is, and then in Acts, one of the first Gentiles saved is a centurion. And so I think Luke assumes that, or wants us to assume that this did go deep. And the attitude that he expresses is definitely one that's true of anyone who has become a Christian. There is literally no one who truly is a Christian who thinks he deserves to be. There is no one who truly is a Christian who, who really thinks he deserves anything but hell from God. There is no one who truly is a Christian who believes that he's a good person in comparison with Jesus. As someone has said, if we are proud of who we are and what we've accomplished in the I did this, I am different, I deserve something, sense of being proud, then we cannot be saved because God opposes that kind of proud person and only gives grace to the humble like this centurion. If there's anyone who thinks salvation comes through his own efforts, it's clear he doesn't have saving faith because one of the first marks of saving faith is its humility. Though this humility doesn't stop the centurion from asking for Jesus' help, and that's important. It just causes him to change the grounds for his request instead. He doesn't ask for Jesus' help based on his own merits, but he asks for Jesus' help based on Jesus' character. Specifically here, he's convinced of the absolute authority of Jesus' word, verse 7. But say the word and let my servant be healed. And we know this isn't all there is to saving faith. This is just an illustration. There's, there's more to saving faith than simply believing in the authority of Jesus' word. But this is part of it. It's believing that Jesus' word has a unique authority. And I think Luke brings this up here because it helps us understand what he said in verse 46 of chapter 6 when he asked, Why did you call me Lord, Lord, and, and, not, and we're not willing to do what I said? The reason a failure to obey Jesus' word is such a big deal and is an evidence that you're not saved is not because you somehow earn your salvation through what you do, but instead because people who have real saving faith recognize the authority of Jesus over everything, even their own lives. Like this Roman centurion. He uses an illustration from his own life, which shows how deeply he understood. Verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And I guess we might have expected the centurion to start by saying he was a man in authority. But actually, he says he was a man under authority. Maybe as an expression of his humility, or, or maybe just because he understands where his authority comes from. After all, ultimately, the, the reason people had to carry out his orders was because he was part of the Roman army, which meant if someone disobeyed the centurion, they would be disobeying the people above him, who at the end of the day really was a, a person. It was Caesar, the emperor, which is why when the centurion said something, it's like what he said was backed up by the whole entire Roman empire, and people had to do it whether he was there or not. And so this centurion understood the whole concept of authority. He gets what it means to be in charge. And so he's saying to Jesus, here, please don't trouble yourself to come to me because I know you don't have to. The, the miracles you perform are not tricks. They're proofs. You are sovereign, which is why I know you don't even have to come to my house to do anything because I understand the kind of authority your word has over even life and death, which is 
honestly just awesome for a centurion to say that, who had sworn allegiance to Caesar, which was not a political statement only, it was a religious one. Caesar claimed to be the son of God with this kind of authority, and that's why he even had soldiers in Israel to maintain his authority, and yet this centurion is looking at Jesus and saying, when I speak to the soldier who's under me, and he has to do what I say, that's the kind of authority your word has, Jesus, over absolutely everything. You are the sovereign king of the universe. Do you understand that? That Jesus has that kind of authority? Because a lot of Jewish people didn't. And that's why Jesus marvels. And why he takes a step back and turns to the crown that was following him. And he's like, did you just see that? Because that's faith. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Which, of course, was the problem and why they weren't experiencing salvation. Even though, like the centurion, they were coming to Jesus and they were believing he could do these miracles. That didn't really impress Jesus because he knew they did not grasp who he was like that centurion did. Because they weren't submitting, which is why Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? They didn't recognize his authority over them. He's like, I tell disease what to do, and it does it. I, I tell death what to do, and it does it. I tell demons what to do, and they do it. I tell storms what to do, and they do it. And yet you see all that, and you can't seem to catch what it means because I tell you what to do, and you don't do it. That doesn't make sense. That's not saving faith. If you look to Jesus as being in charge over nature, but you don't realize that also means he is in charge over you, you don't quite get it. Do you get it? I, I, don't, I don't want to assume. I'm afraid that a lot of people, they practice what you would call slipcover Christianity. You know slipcover Christianity? You remember uh, maybe some of you when you were in school and uh, you would make a cover for your textbooks? Imagine a, uh, a textbook with the title, All About Me. That's the book we've been reading since we were born. When we become Christians, we throw that textbook out and we pick up a new book titled Jesus is King. But sometimes what people do, instead of putting down the old book, all about me, and picking up the new one, Jesus is King, some people just put a cover on the old book. So it looks like they're studying the new text, when in reality, underneath, it's the same old book that they're studying, all about me. I remember hearing about someone saying to this theologian, and they had grown up in a Christian home, but at one point they started to, to really listen to what people were saying, and they were like, you know all this talk about how important God is and how central God is and how in control God is? This person came up to the theologian after the lecture, and they said, I've never been so close to not being a Christian as when I started hearing all that. And that theologian looked back at her, and he was like, actually... You've never been so close to being a Christian as when you finally start understanding that. 
This is essentially what it means to, calling, to call Jesus Lord. It's to recognize his authority over your life. You come to him because he's good. He wants to save you. But as you come to him, you recognize who he is. He's Lord, like this centurion did. Luke brings up this centurion as an illustration of what saving faith looks like. The Jews missed it, but this Gentile got it, which is shocking. Even Jesus was amazed. And yet it's also hopeful, because these are the kind of people Jesus is saving. It's not people maybe you might expect, but people who see themselves for who they are, unworthy sinners, and who see Jesus for who he is, the sovereign king who has the power and authority to save. And I guess I'm asking, have you ever seen that? It's important because those are the kind of people Jesus is saving. And if you have seen that, are you still seeing it? Are you still seeing it? Because it's easy to forget. Jesus is so much more significant and so much more awesome and powerful and superior to anyone that you've ever met. He is in a class by himself. If you start thinking Jesus is your equal, you're not seeing Jesus. He is the one to whom God the Father has given all power and authority, which of course means that he can save you. And we're going to see his compassion in the next story. He wants to save you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he can save you and will save you if you come to him for salvation, not because you deserve it, but because you know he's good, you know he's faithful to his promises, you see him for who he is, and you're relying on his mercy alone to save you. If you don't get that, you won't experience salvation or enjoy it. As someone's explained, salvation is not granted on the basis of a man's goods, works, worth, or merit. It is given on the grounds of faith. And faith, according to this story, is not confidence that we've done the best we could, that God will access our merits generously. Faith, hear this, is abandoning trust in our works and merit and any thought of deserving salvation and relying totally and without reserve on the person of Christ and the authority of his word. Have you done that? Are you abandoning trust in your work and merit? and any thought of deserving salvation, and relying totally and without reserve on the person of Christ and the authority of his word. You know one way you can tell? You know one way that you can tell? That it's not just words? Because for a lot of people, it's just words. You know one way you can tell? <laughs> Obedience. If you know you are not worthy, and you know Jesus is Lord. If you really believe that, you are not going to just call him Lord and do what you want. You are going to call him Lord and do what he says.